Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. So what's it been like driving in Connecticut over the last year and a half? Would you say people have been more reckless on highways and on local roads? If you're a pedestrian or a cyclist, it could be pretty scary getting around. Studies show over the last decade, more than 14 people a day on average have been struck and killed in the U.S. Today, where we live, we hear how communities can design safer streets for everyone. And later, cities and towns experimented with closing down streets to help local restaurants with outdoor dining in the pandemic. But should these efforts continue? You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me first on Zoom is Beth Osborne. She's Vice President for Transportation and Thriving Communities at Smart Growth America. Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with that stat. That's actually from your report, uh, the, your group, Smart Growth America, that more than 14 pedestrians are killed on average in the U.S. every day. And the numbers have been growing over the last few years. Can you talk about why? They have. They've really been steadily going up for uh, over a decade now. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the way we've been building our roadways is for the speed of vehicles. And the problem when you build all roadways, whether they're meant to be routes to get through an area or a local street for speed, is when you're driving quickly, you don't have the same field of vision. Uh, you don't have the opportunity to react to a potential conflict very quickly. And when you do have a crash, it's much more likely to be deadly. And that is uh, more than doubly true for people outside of a car. We've talked about this before on the show. When we think about the way cars are designed over the last uh, decade, uh, so many people driving bigger cars, uh, Beth, and, and does that play a part when we think about uh, these these crashes happening? Lucy, that is a really important point that you have raised, uh, particularly SUVs and pickups have been built with uh, hoods that are so high that the driver is unable to see people even my height, which is as a fully grown adult, uh, I put in air quotes, uh, five foot two, um, means we, we are essentially designing uh, vehicles to blind the driver to obstacles in the road or people crossing the street. Uh, there are uh, examples that people have put uh, in uh, online and in reports showing that you can line up a 15 member kindergarten class in front of one of those cars and the driver cannot see them. And somehow that passes for roadworthy in this country. Wow. That's really frightening, Beth. Uh, when you were talking earlier about uh, the way our streets and, and roads are designed, uh, and it's, we think about speed, I mean, even when we have this conversation in Connecticut, we think about ways to, to reduce traffic and to get people uh, to work and to school faster. We often think about, you know, we hear um, officials talk about adding lanes or ways, again, to make that commute shorter, but that comes at, at a price. 
Yes, and what's interesting is what we think will make things shorter have actually made things longer. So, so much of our transportation system comes out of the interstate building age. And we have taken a lot of the interstate standards and applied them in a one-size-fits-all way to all roadway design, even that, you know, that, that we call them arterials, that kind of main street uh, outside of your neighborhood. And the problem with that is, you know, interstates, they might be wide and fast, but they're also cut off from all conflicts and development around it. So if you enter an interstate, you we have a very specialized way to bring you into that environment and merge you into it and take you out of it. You take those speeds and those widths and you apply them to streets where there are driveways and people and crossings and lights and it doesn't work. We knew that when we built the interstates, that's why we separated them, but somehow we've forgotten that and we've applied those speed standards to our local roads. The thing is, the things you do to make cars go quickly often lengthens your trip. It encourages development to go further out and Think about that roadway you've driven on where there's no left turn all the way down. And so you have to go way out of your way to come back to the, the area you need to get to. It's because what we consider speeding up traffic is making that one corridor quickly. We don't consider your origin or destination. So it might look like people are moving faster and therefore getting where they need to go to faster, but they may have to drive further to get there and therefore lengthen their trip and take longer. Mm-hmm. You're hearing Beth Osborne here on Where We Live, Vice President for Transportation and Thriving Communities at Smart Growth America. As we talk about this troubling trend, uh, pedestrian deaths increasing over the last decade. Uh, Beth, we're just getting out of, or we feel like we're getting out of a pandemic. And I wanted to talk about how, you know, less people were on the road in this last year and a half. But then pedestrian deaths, didn't they continue to climb? I think what's important to recognize is all deaths climbed a great deal. We saw a huge increase in the rate of fatalities. So we measure two things, the raw number of fatalities, but the amount of fatalities based on how much people are driving to get a sense of what our exposure to danger is. And we saw that rate go up by more than uh, we've seen in 96 years. And that is because as traffic levels dropped, down to, I, I think it dropped about 13 or 14% nationwide, speeds went way up. Um, basically, people during rush hour were going slower because of traffic before COVID. But without traffic there, people followed the design cues in the roadway, which told them the road is wide and safe. That means you get to go fast. And it led to more crashes uh, and more death, both for people in and out of a vehicle. It turns out traffic congestion, the thing we seem to want to solve more than anything else in the world, is currently one of our most important safety interventions. When we talk about the people who've been killed in these crashes, who bears the brunt? Who are the people we're talking about? Yes, well, uh, clearly it's it's people who aren't surrounded by a couple of tons of, uh, of metal. So, uh, and the people you tend to see out walking Uh, are people uh, who don't have access to a vehicle. Now, in a place like where I live in Washington, D.C., you'll see all kinds of people out walking and biking. But in most of America, they don't have access to walkable areas that are built for people. And people who don't have access to a a vehicle because they don't have the the money or maybe they're unable to drive a car. 
um, are, are often uh, disabled, uh, low income. They're usually uh, people of color or they're more often people of color. And so we see that the burden is not shared equally. Uh, Black Americans and Native Americans are substantially more at risk uh, of being killed while walking. And, and I'll also say older adults, particularly uh, when they get over 70, they're more frail and they don't move as fast. And so they're also more at risk. Your organization's report, again, titled Dangerous by Design, it, it came out with a strong statement. I wanted to read this. Our current approach to addressing the rising number of people struck and killed while walking has been a total failure. It needs to be reconsidered or dropped altogether. So talk more about that. The approach, we, we heard you say what hasn't been working, right? Making roads wider, thinking about uh, making commutes shorter, uh, ends up, you know, people are speeding. We think about the way cars are designed. So what are some strategies that, that officials need to be thinking about and adopting now, Beth? Well, one thing is you don't just plunk bike pedestrian uh, infrastructure on top of a highway. And that's the mistake we're referring to. Um, I I fear that our engineering community wants to have it all and not have to make trade-offs. But you do. You can't have a highway on every road. Some roads need to be locally serving so that people can get to the businesses they're trying to get to. And that creates that vibrant walkable area that frankly, people are willing to pay quite a lot to move into both businesses and uh, residents. And so we need to not think about bicyclists and pedestrians as an extra thing we try to squeeze into a highway, but an important and integral part of the roadway system. And therefore we might need the uh, motorists to drive more slowly. The other thing that we've messed up on repeatedly is we think we can create a little tiny program to fix uh, uh, safety problems in particular places. Um, At the federal level, we spend about $2 billion a year on the highway safety improvement program, but we spend $25 billion a year on the National Highway Performance Program that really undercuts all of what we're doing in that $2 billion. And again, it's this notion that we'll just kind of, we'll just sneak bicyclists and pedestrians into the formula rather than truly designing for them. So the way you design for all users is you build a roadway recognizing that there are complexities in that roadway. It means there's going to be driveways and entrances to business. It means there's going to be parking on the side of the road. It means there's going to be people turning on and off and crossing your corridor. It means there's going to be people walking and biking. And when there's complexity, there needs to be deliberate movement of vehicles. That means they have to slow down so the driver can be aware of all of what's going on and make decisions thoughtfully and carefully. The second you speed up that traffic, you need to get rid of the complexity. You need to rid that corridor of development. You really need to limit the number of crossings and you need to fully separate anybody outside of a car. And we don't want to make that choice. We want to try to do half and half. And like my friend uh, Chuck Marone at Strong Town says, we create the futon of transportation. You know, a futon is an uncomfortable bed and it's an uncomfortable sofa. It fails at both things it's trying to do. And that's what our typical roadway does. It fails at being a safe, locally serving uh, economic development strip. And it also fails at being a good throughway. This is a great time to bring into the conversation a DOT official here in our state. On the phone with us is Garrett Ucolito, Deputy Commissioner of the Connecticut State Department of Transportation. Garrett, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good morning. 
I have to ask, how do you respond to what uh, to what Beth has shared, including this the futon of transportation? <laughs> I uh, actually completely agree with uh, what Beth has been saying this morning. Um, uh, when you drive in certain parts of our state where there is more activity, we have you if you have narrower lanes, if you have um, uh, amenities or facets of the street that make you drive slower, um, you're more, you're heightened attention when you're traveling. I live in New Haven. If I'm traveling in upper State Street area where there's a lot of activity and you have the narrow lanes and you have a lot of commercial activity, I am consciously uh, aware and being careful uh, for pedestrians and bikers who may come out into um, the system with me. Um, if you have a designed system that has wider roads, um, no crosswalks, um, you have this natural inclination to drive faster. And that's something that we at the DOT are consciously trying to address um, as we go back in to repair or replace a lot of our infrastructure that was designed and built 50, 60 years ago. Uh, when we started the conversation, we were talking about pedest pedestrian deaths increasing you know, looking at a report uh, from the state DOT early this year, you know, even in Connecticut over the last year, the state has averaged 58 pedestrian deaths annually. And in 2020, 65 people died after being struck. And so what have we seen now in uh, 2021? And what are some strategies uh, that DOT is putting in place? And how do you work with towns and cities on this? Yeah, 2021 is uh, currently on the pedestrian level slightly better than 2020. Um, unfortunately, um, for all fatalities on roadways, 2021 is on track to be our deadliest year in the past 15 years or so, um, and that's completely unacceptable. Uh, so we are trying to create more partnerships here at the department. We have a new partnership with AARP, um, and I think uh, some listeners may have seen some ads that we're doing to raise awareness about the risks that older and elderly pedestrians and bikers may face as they um, travel through our system, crossing through the crosswalks, navigating our sidewalks. It's trying to raise awareness for uh, other drivers in our state to recognize the risks that elderly pedestrians face. We're also... Yep. Go ahead, Garrett. Okay. Um, we're also trying to retrofit a lot of our intersections with new uh, pedestrian signal crossheads, the the walking person with the countdown clock, um, and trying to do something called leading pedestrian intervals, where the pedestrian will have a head start on the cars before their cars have a green light. So that way the pedestrians are actually in the crosswalk before the cars get a light and may turn um, preemptively into uh, the path of a pedestrian. So we've heard for about design from Beth, and you've given us some examples of ways uh, to uh, keep people safe. But when there are pedestrian deaths, often the response from local officials is, well, we have to do more traffic enforcement, make sure people are using crosswalks or not, you know, the, the, the term that transportation advocates hate, jaywalking, right? So what about ticketing more people for speeding? Oh, what else uh, can be done? Because the burden often seems like it's put on pedestrians, not the driver. It's true, and it's unfortunate because a pedestrian should never be blamed um, for uh, the actions that may be caused by a driver who's in a safe vehicle with airbags, with seatbelts. The pedestrian has no protection 
Um, and as Beth pointed out, the vehicles are becoming deadlier on our roadways. Uh, we do need to see um, enforcement uh, speed laws in our state. Um, unfortunately, the there, w- there was legislation proposed this session by Representative Roll and Lamar, given that would have allowed for um, automated traffic enforcement or speed cameras in specific areas, such as school zones. That did not advance. Um, that would have been a great pilot to show the benefits of that to help reduce speeds in our state. Um, I lived in D.C. as as Beth does, and uh, where you have speed cameras, you notice a marked increase decrease in speeding. Um, But we also need to ensure that we're investing in the infrastructure that can protect the pedestrians and the bikers, having protected bike lanes, installing sidewalks. So much of Connecticut does not have sidewalks. And that's something that we at the DOT want to continue to partner with our municipalities to get the buy-in to install sidewalks wherever possible. Well, so tell us when you say get the buy-in. So what do you hear from local officials when the suggestion is you know you need you need to have sidewalks here? You know I think there's a lot of hesitancy. Uh, you have to maintain those sidewalks. You have to clear them. Uh, you have to clear the snow. Uh, unlike southern states, they may not face the snow that we do. Um, sidewalks will need to be cleared of snow to pr- provide those pedestrians with a safe path. We also need to clear out um, where we at the DOT want to install more um, and better and well-lit bus uh, shelters across our state. We need to ensure that our partnerships exist to help clear those. So it is just um, education for municipal officials, raising uh, the importance of providing that safe infrastructure for our pedestrians. Um, and you know we're willing to help fund a lot of those. The legislature and Governor Lamont secured passage of $12 million a year in state funds for our community connectivity grant program. Um, we've already awarded 90 um, grants so far. We're going to have $12 million each year for the next two years. So that's a lot of infrastructure we can build to protect our pedestrians and bikers in our state. Beth Osborne, I wanted to hear uh, your take. Uh, what did you want to add to when we think about enforcement versus design? Uh, Absolutely. I I think what is so important about what Garrett is talking about and what Connecticut DOT pointed out in their pedestrian safety uh, uh, report is that speed reduction and infrastructure is the right starting place. Right now, the, the human being responds to the, the the design around them. And when you build a wide road with wide lanes and infrequent stops, they are naturally, we know this, we've studied it over and over, going to drive fast. They're going to think there aren't places they have to worry about. If you then blame them for the conflict that you set up with your design or enforce against them, it's one gigantic trick you're playing on the driver. The fact of the matter is our car only environment is incredibly hostile to drivers. And we need to give drivers the information they need to behave the way we want. So starting with the infrastructure and what Connecticut is focusing on is incredible, is the right first step. And that's something that I really want to commend them on. Um, I also think we have to recognize that while pedestrian deaths um, you know, are, are high, uh, we're missing all the people who aren't even attempting it because it's too darn scary. Mm-hmm. That's an important point. And when we think about pedestrians and people who use our streets, but also thinking about making them accessible for people in wheelchairs, are they left out of this conversation often, Beth? 
they're left out of so very many conversations. And, and what you find uh, that's really interesting is when you start building those sidewalks and, and all facilities for people who might use mobility assisted devices, that you actually help everybody out. I can say that when I was pushing a stroller, those curb cuts were the greatest gift to me. Or when I'm dragging, uh, now I live in a walkable neighborhood, something that is in incredible demand, but in very rare supply because of government rules that make it very hard to build them and transportation standards that make them very hard to build them. But I go to the grocery and I I pull a little uh, a, a cart back with my groceries. Again, I'm trying to drag those up curbs. When we make those facilities more accessible to those who might have mobility impairments, we actually make them easier for all of us to use. It's a benefit across the board. You're hearing Beth Osborne here on Where We Live, Vice President for Transportation and Thriving Communities at Smart Growth America. As we talk about how we can make streets safe for everyone, I want to thank Garrett Ucalito for joining us. He's Deputy Commissioner of Connecticut State Department of Transportation. Sounds like a, a good follow-up with you in a few months, Garrett. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk to a town planner and hear from restaurant owners about reimagining streets post-pandemic. From safety to functionality, what changes from the pandemic do you want to see remain? You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On a previous show, we talked to New Haven, which has embraced complete streets. This means designing roadways for all users. We wanted to hear from other municipalities about their efforts and ways they've reimagined streets over the last year and a half in the pandemic. Joining us now on Zoom is Gary Anderson, Director of Planning and Economic Development for the Town of Manchester. Gary, welcome to the show. Morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about COVID and dining and the changes you've made, I wanted you to respond to what we heard from Beth Osborne with this you know, really troubling data showing that pedestrian deaths continue to increase. And what have you seen in Manchester, Gary? Sure, thanks. Yeah, so um, we've obviously seen the things that Beth is talking about here locally. I'm sure pretty much every, every municipality has. Um, unfortunately, we have had a pedestrian death in recent years uh, downtown, and we've you know, worked hard as a community to, to try to figure out how to improve things um, for pedestrians and all users in the streets, as, as Beth was mentioning before. Um, so we have kind of a near-term strategy and a long-term strategy. Um, Near-term, we're really looking at some of these uh, pedestrian improvements that uh, the DOT was talking about before, Garrett from the DOT. Um, we're looking at installing some uh, rapid flashing beacons downtown. So you may have seen those installed in other places uh, in, this, in the state recently. Uh, those are crosswalks that are accompanied by uh, a button that pedestrians can push that um, actually flash as the pedestrian starts to cross um, in locations where there's not uh, where there's not a traffic light. Um, so that's you know one thing. There's a couple places in our downtown in particular that are, are really dangerous places to cross, um, and you know instead of um, enforcing that as you, as you mentioned before, in partnership with enforcing that. Um, accommodating pedestrians to cross in those locations where it makes sense. So yeah, we've seen, unfortunately, we've seen some of these issues that Beth is talking about. And I think like everywhere, everywhere else, we're trying to address them. 
So let's talk about the changes you've made because of the pandemic. How did you see the streets change in the town of Manchester when we think about how to help businesses like restaurants? Sure. So um, we've seen things change pretty significantly. And uh, I mean, you know, these ideas are not are not new ideas, but I think they've come. They've kind of been turbocharged since the pandemic um, in some respects. Um, ideas of using on-street parking spaces for outdoor dining. I know we're going to talk to restaurants in, in a few minutes here, um, but that's really something that's become popular and something that you know planners have, have talked about for years. Um, making sure that we're that we're reinforcing the idea that streets are shared spaces. As to Beth's point earlier, they're not just for vehicles; they're for all users, pedestrians, um, people that might be uh, visiting a business like a restaurant, cyclists, etc. Um, so in Manchester, you know, we've accommodated um, outdoor dining, especially downtown on some of those uh, on-street parking spaces. Um, we've tried to make it easier for restaurants and other places to use the public space um, and get back to that idea that, that streets are really meant to be for all users, not just vehicles. When we think about uh, putting tables and empty parking spaces, you know, that makes sense, right? When, uh, especially if a, if a town or city closes down a particular street and they can, people can park elsewhere and walk over. But when we think about accessibility issues, you know, putting tables in front of restaurants on, um, in sidewalk areas, you know, how do that impacts all users when we think about people with mobility issues, Gary? Sure. Well, that really has to be, you know, I mentioned we kind of have a near-term and long-term strategy. That really needs to be a long-term strategy. And, you know, as a town, we're, we're thinking about, you know, how to make downtown and everywhere in Manchester accessible to, to everyone, uh, you know, no matter what, uh, what uh, mobility level they are, no matter what uh, vehicle or whether they're pedestrian they're using. Um, so we actually have a complete streets policy here as well. Um, Garrett mentioned earlier, New Haven has one. We, we have one as well. And that's really uh, an important kind of shift in the way that we think about designing our, our public spaces and making places, uh, you know, spaces in Manchester, places uh, where people want to be and people where people feel safe. Um, so for downtown, that's really, you know, a, a long-term plan. We're, we're kind of in the design phase now of thinking about how to reimagine the entire downtown Main Street uh, in a way that really accommodates uh, all people, no matter who they are, no matter uh, their ability, or no matter what uh, type of vehicle they're using, like I said. Um, so that that really incorporates everyone from pedestrians on the sidewalk. Uh, we have you know fairly wide streets here, but they could be wider. So thinking about um, locations where we could provide uh, an, an additional sidewalk area that means uh, a protected, a protected uh, bicycle facility. So whether that's a bike lane or, or a, another protected area for bicycles, that's something that, that we're uh, contemplating now. Um, probably trying to narrow the lanes, uh, as, as Garrett mentioned, for vehicles on the street or uh, reduce the number of lanes. Um, and as folks have, have pointed out before, that really helps to, to cut down on the speed of traffic. Um, and really generally what we're trying to do is reinforce the idea that downtown and these, these local places everywhere in the state are destinations, right? They're places where we pe want people to be, where we want people to come visit and, you know, uh, shop at biz businesses, go out to a restaurant, um, rather than just being a corridor or a throughway. Um, certainly there's a place for those as well when you need to get somewhere. And, you know, I'm obviously, you know, I think we all are guilty um, when we're driving thinking of a street just as a way to get to A and B. 
um, but we're trying to really change the conversation and make sure, uh, you know, downtown and other places are seen as destinations. And that's the priority in terms of the people that are there and attracting people to be there rather than uh, the vehicles that are passing through. You're hearing Gary Anderson, who's Director of Planning and Economic Development for the town of Manchester, Connecticut, as we talk about how towns and cities have reimagined their streets uh, in this pandemic. Again, a lot of outdoor dining uh, that has taken place. I know the governor having an executive order that gave uh, areas uh, more flexibility and permission to do that. I wanted to bring into the conversation an uh, actual restaurant owner, Michael Marchetti, who owns several restaurants in Fairfield County. Uh, Michael, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, so tell us, you own several restaurants. Uh, what does it look like for you at Columbus Park in Stanford or Tarantino in Westport? How did you continue to operate in this pandemic with some of these changes? Well, it's been, uh, it's, it's been a rough road, to say the least. Um, you know, we had to transition from full-service restaurants to takeout only for uh, a period of time and then transition from that into uh, outdoor dining only, then indoor dining with, with restrictions, um, and in between, you know, a lot of spikes, uh, periods of, of great business to periods of no business again. Uh, but, you know, we saw last summer um, when we began outdoor dining that the potential to really grow the business was there. Uh, the three locations that I have, only one had outdoor dining. That was the one in Stanford, Columbus Park. We had sidewalk dining. Um, and it was something that the city had implemented probably going back 20 years. But our footprint was small. We probably had maybe 20 uh, available seats uh, the, the other two locations did not have that ability. When the executive order from the governor went into effect, I converted a parking lot, my parking lot in my old Greenwich restaurant to a, a dining room. And that community totally embraced being outside. Uh, they appreciated it. One, obviously because of the pandemic, but also just the beauty of, alfresco dining and uh it really just jump-started what has become a great year for us uh, at that particular restaurant in my restaurant in westport we're located directly across the street from the train station and we have a very small sidewalk the city there the town there uh, implemented uh street dining uh giving us parking spaces so I think there's like three or four restaurants on our block and then around the town, we built platforms and we were able to occupy three full parking spaces and we sat probably 30, 40 people. And, and that actually of the three restaurants, we utilize that space almost year round, unless it was, you know, below zero weather we had people sitting there in December, January, February, um, regularly. And, and then in Stanford, uh, in the street, in the neighborhood that I am located, uh, the city closed part of the road. So we were able to extend our patio from the sidewalk to the double lines, the double yellow lines. 
um, giving us almost a full or plus size dining room. And it's been tremendous. Um, you know, in Stanford, we were already equipped for it because we did a lot of seasonal events over the summers, concerts, a lot of street closures. So we were ready for it. And the community here uh, had already experienced outdoor dining. But Westport and Old Greenwich, uh, it really transformed the, the restaurant scene, I believe. Well, it sounds great and when we think about uh, all the changes and helping a restaurant so with their bottom line in a very challenging year. So, Michael, what do you want to see from town and state officials going forward? I think this executive order extended temporarily. Is this something that you hope the state uh, and towns embrace uh, permanently? Well, again, in my situation, three restaurants, three different uh, municipalities, three different set of laws. Uh, I would love to see, uh, you know, through the governor's executive orders or each individual town, extend the the ability for restaurants to utilize public space, parking spaces. Um, you know, people travel differently nowadays. There's Uber and Lyfts and, and, and all that sort of stuff. A lot of communities are building more uh, re- more um, apartments in the downtowns so people could walk to restaurants. It's really becoming uh, a very important facet of our industry. And always keeping in mind, I, I'm sure people are still going to be thinking about a pandemic way past this one, just the ability to be outside and feeling a little safer, not being indoors, mm. at least for part of the year. Maybe feeling like they're in Europe, Michael? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, in Fairfield County and, and the rest of Connecticut, I'm sure there's people that have traveled all over. Uh, and if you go to Europe and a, and a lot of other international cities, uh, people are outside. When there's beautiful weather, they utilize every square inch of, of a piazza or, you know, a sidewalk or it, it's just, the way things are, you just, you know, it's, it's expected almost. And, and, and things move along, you know, and, and these are old centuries, centuries old cities that were not built with six foot, 16 feet sidewalks. Uh, you know, people manage. Here we have all these resources and we make accommodations for, for um, people with disabilities, any kind of situation. So I think we have the the potential to really uh, increase the the experience of our dining scene, the the city experience. uh, You know, the potential is there for sure. Uh, One more for you, Michael. What has been the pushback, if at all? Because people, a lot of people still drive and they want to be able to park close to where they're going out and to not have that parking nearby. You know, has it been a challenge in any of these places that you operate? No, again, you know, in my in Westport and Old Greenwich, uh, there's at, at night, there's very little retail business that's open. So whatever parking spaces are dedicated to that are available for diners. So it's really not an issue in Stanford, you know, like a New Haven, like a Hartford, a big city. Uh, there's a lot of public garages. Uh, and, and, and again, 
people travel, you know, people that live in, in Fairfield County work in New York City. They travel to New York City. Parking in New York is not an easy task. So they're used to it. You know, I think there's a, a demographics that will look and say, oh, I remember when in my town, I could just drive in and park right in front of the store I was going to. Now it's changed. You know, change happens. People need to adjust. Um, you know, parking will always be an issue, but I think people are, are, are adapting to new challenges. Uh, and, you know, you, you want to be out. You want to be, you want to be at, at the hot restaurant, the hot bar. Um, people will make do. Well, Michael Marchetti, we thank you for your flexibility today, and good to hear that you're doing well. Again, owner of several restaurants in Fairfield County, including Columbus Park in Stanford. Michael, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue talking about how cities and towns are, have reimagined their streets, and we want to hear from you, too. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nelpethanchel. Today we're talking about how cities and towns have reimagined their streets in the pandemic and whether these changes should continue. Uh, joining us now on the phone is another restaurant owner in our state, Andres Cordido, co-owner of Somos Handcrafted Arepas in New Haven. Andres, welcome to our show. Uh, good morning. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. So uh, tell us a little bit about where you're located. And I think it's off of Orange Street Promenade. So this was closed off uh, right in front of your business. How has that helped you? Yeah, so we're actually right on Orange and Crown and right in the middle of the promenade. And we opened up last year during the middle of the pandemic. So when we first opened up, there was the street was still not closed. Um, so traffic was still going through and then up deciding to closing it. We've been hearing um, from retailers next door to us that they've been trying to do that for the past five years to close down the streets. So when we heard they were actually going to happen, we were super excited. So it's the street is fully closed. They have a nice walkway right down the middle of the street. We have tables and chairs all on each side of the street. And on the weekends, we have live music, live bands. We have a, a, a salsa studio actually comes in. Friday night, and they do uh, salsa. They teach first for the first like half hour. They teach salsa dancing, and then you see about hundreds of people coming in and just dancing salsa for the for the past for <laughs> the next it. like three four hours. Yeah, that so, sounds great. What a, what a energy! Yeah, it's been amazing energy. Um, it's been helping us out too. Obviously, our first priority is to keep our customers safe, and for the town to close down the street just helped us out made people more comfortable coming out and enjoying the meal, enjoying time with friends, not being stuck at home, being able to do different things. And as you see, like uh, the previous guys speaking before me, in Europe and different different cities across the United States and different cities across the, um, across the world, eating outside is kind of like normal. Like, you love eating outside. I, I used to love going to New York City and be like, oh, let's eat here because you can sit outside. We're not used to this. Now that the street is closed and some parts of uh, New Haven are also closed, people are really enjoying it. They're really like, wow, let's just go here, enjoy. We can sit outside and have a nice meal. 
And what are you hearing from New Haven officials? Will these types of promenades continue, do you think, even after this pandemic's over? Um, I believe so. Right now they're telling us they're going to keep our, our street closed until about October, November, until it starts getting cold. But supposedly next year and the following year they're going to keep doing it. We hope they keep doing it. I think it's something um, new and excited for people. So I think moving forward we should be um, – the officials should keep these streets closed. Well, Andres, it was good to hear from you. I can't believe you opened in the pandemic, but it sounds like things are going well. We appreciate your time today telling us your experience. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. You too. Andres Cordido, again, co-owner of Somos Handcrafted Arepas in New Haven. Uh, Gary Anderson still with us. He's the Director of Planning and Economic Development for the town of Manchester. Uh, Gary, what have you been hearing from your community about street closures and moving forward? Sure, I'm glad you asked that, actually, and that was really interesting to hear about uh, what's happening in New Haven as well. Um, we actually have, have uh, tried uh, a street closure as well here, which has been tremendously successful for the most part. Uh, we have a tiny little street off of Main Street called Purnell Place, uh, and it's really become sort of the central, um, the central area of downtown, the central area of activity, um, which, is, which is pretty neat um, and something kind of unexpected. But uh, a local brewery called Urban Lodge Brewery opened there uh, a few years ago. Uh, and there's a couple of restaurants on the on the street as well, Lucky Taco and Sukatai. And uh, we were able to close the street temporarily uh, last year through the health emergency throughout the season. Uh, and that really provided some additional space for people to be outdoors to feel comfortable. Um, this year, we've really expanded that. Uh, and we partnered with a group called Rise Up Connecticut, who's a youth empowerment uh, nonprofit. And um, uh, we've hosted some events. There was one last night, every Thursday in July, there's uh, an event after work for people to come down, uh, visit the brewery, listen to music. There's music, there's uh, pop-up vendors. Um, it's really just populating the street. Again, changing the street from something that was dominated 100% by vehicles pre- previously, or almost 100%, to something now where there's there's no vehicles and there's hundreds of people. Uh, and I was really happy to hear from the restaurant owner that that's been good for their business. It's been good for um, most of the businesses uh, here as well. And that's, that's great to hear. Um, after last uh, last year, we actually did a community survey to, to try to find out what people thought of, of that closure. And the, the, support, the support was just tremendous. Um, for the closure of that street, about 85% of the people that responded, we had probably 400 respondents, something like that. Um, 85% either liked or loved the closure of the street. Uh, and we also asked them about the, the uh, dining and the parking spaces on Main Street. And about 83% either liked or loved that. So. You know, that's really important for us to get feedback from the community in, on these things. Um, and yes, we think they're good ideas and we're trying to respond to the needs of the restaurants. Um, but it's really good to know that the community is behind these as well. And we hope we can uh, continue them moving forward. Uh, Beth Osborne is with us, Vice President for Transportation and Thriving Communities at Smart Growth America. So we heard about these changes happening in the pandemic uh, to protect health, but also when we think about how uh, there's an economic value of making room for pedestrians, Beth. That is such an important point, and I've really enjoyed hearing about these experiences from the uh, uh, restaurant owners, there, there's been a long-standing belief, and we read about this in the papers when we hear congestion reports and things like that, that if cars can go quickly, that's the best thing for our economy. 
But just think about it. If you're a business owner, is it better for you for the car to go by your storefront at 45 miles per hour or drive in slowly and see you and stop? Uh, What's really good for the economy is to see, uh, to have an environment that is vibrant where you see people. Um, And one of the greatest things uh, I notice as I walk down uh, roadways locally that have what we call streeteries, um, people sitting out having dinner is I I see a lot of excited people outside the restaurant. I see the food, I smell the food, and I I automatically think, ooh, I have to try that place. Whereas if everything was shut behind a window, I wouldn't have that same reaction. So I think it's been a really exciting experience for us all, those who are customers and the business owners alike. And um, uh, there were discussions about this before COVID, uh, how to use what we call the curb better for all the different demands from parking to parklets to restaurant seating and bike lanes. But um, COVID supercharged it and really got us to be experimental. And I hope going forward, we try uh, things out. It doesn't have to be a permanent change right off the bat. Let's go try things for a few months and get the feedback from the community that Gary's talking about and use that feedback to create something really excellent. Oh, well, Robert called in earlier. He wasn't able to stay on to ask this question. But when we talk, we were talking with you, Beth, about uh, making roads safe for everyone and streets safe. Uh, Robert suggested that we would benefit f- by having more single lane roundabouts that force drivers to slow. We we, we talked about roundabouts uh, a long time ago, but uh, just talk about this, uh, t- this, this type of, I guess, uh, strategy uh, for helping drivers get to where they need to be, but making sure that it's they're they're moving slowly as well. Yeah, uh, roundabouts are an excellent thing to bring in. I, I think, unfortunately, sometimes in the United States, our uh, public works and departments of transportation over-engineer them. Um, they don't let them be exactly what the caller was talking about, a place where the drivers slow down and, and look and interact. They try to to, to dictate all actions at all points. And it that doesn't work very well. But I can tell you, um, I mean, I've also gotten to travel a bit. And what was really interesting to me is I traveled to Iceland um, uh, and they connect their highways by roundabouts. And so even in higher speed environments, they, they're a very smooth transition. I saw trucks going through them. You don't have to maintain as many traffic lights. It, it's, it's a great tool that's used all over the world. And somehow there's an attitude that Americans aren't up to the challenge, but, uh, but I have faith. <laughs> well, there is that roundabout when you're going to the Cape and wooey, that can be a little tricky, <laughs> but it might be interesting to see more of those uh, around uh, where we live. Beth Osborne, thank you again uh, for being on the show today. A lot of interesting things for us to think about. We appreciate your time. She's Vice President for Transportation and Thriving Communities at Smart Growth America. Beth, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And Gary Anderson was here, Director of Planning and Economic Development for the Town of Manchester. A lot happening in Manchester. So glad that you're able to come on and tell us about it, Gary. Thank you very much. Have a good morning. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show, produced by Carmen Baskoff. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. Hannes Brown composed our theme song. And Tess Terrible is on the phones today. Have a great weekend. <laughs>